The title for this morning's talk is Indra's Net. And those of you who were here last night could take it as a sequel of last night's talk on loneliness. Anyway, what is this Indra's Net stand for? Indra's net is a legend that's quite central to Mahayana Buddhism, particularly the Chinese branch, and has been detailed in a scripture, like all scriptures attributed to the Buddha, probably rightfully so, but nobody knows, of course called the Flower Ornament Scripture. That's a translation of a name that I don't dare pronouncing. According to this uh, legend, Indra, the emperor of very gods, had this palace. And in his palace hanging in his palace, there was this huge net. Always wondering, you know, whether this palace wasn't a bit more ethereal than that, and that the net wasn't floating rather than hanging, whatever. (laughs) You can can use your own imagery. But the important thing is not the imagery, but the metaphor. The net is a metaphor for the universe. The net, like all nets, is made with strands, of course, that intersect. At each intersection in Indra's net, there's a jewel set. A jewel that's translucent, that's brilliant. And because of the arrangement, of the jewels in the net, of the net itself, each jewel can reflect all other jewels in the net. That's the magic of it. The, 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 the jewels not only reflect, bounce back light, but also are translucent, so they're really, the whole universe is interpenetrated by everything else. Those jewels represent each and every entity of the universe, including all beings, of course, including ourselves. Consider then what Indra's net says about humanity. It says that each one of us is a reflection, the mirror of all of us. In this room and further out, this room might be just a a little area of Indra's neck, but it keeps extending infinitely. 
in a way, within this room, that's the sort of thing that we experience, I find, that we experience in the groups and in the inquiry. And we get a taste of that this afternoon, hopefully. Situations where the, the voices of one come to represent the voice of many. Let me read uh, this from a very wise Zen teacher, D.T. Suzuki. He says, this is uh, from essays in Zen Buddhist, uh, wrote a long time ago. He says, the fundamental insight of the flower ornament scripture, that's a scripture describing Indrasanet, is known as interpenetration. Each individual reality, besides being itself, reflects in it something of the universal. And at the same time, it is itself because of other individuals. A system of perfect relationship exists among individual existences and also between individuals and universals, between particular objects and general ideas. The perfect network of mutual relationships has received the technical name of interpenetration at the hand of the Mahayana philosophers. Mahayana is a tradition, one of the major traditions in Buddhism, of course. When the Empress Sen Tien of the Tang, no, sorry, Sen Tien of Tang, felt it difficult to grasp the meaning of interpenetration, Fat Sang, the great master of the flower ornament school of Buddhism, illustrated it the following way. So here we have another metaphor that's uh, very similar to the one of the net, of course, as you will see. He, this uh, teacher, master, had a first a candle lighted and then had mirrors placed encircling it on all sides. The central light reflected itself in every one of the mirrors, and every one of these reflected lights was reflected again in every mirror, so that there was a perfect interplay of lights, that is, of concretes and universals. It is necessary to have this kind of philosophy for the understanding of the flower ornament scripture. Oh, by the way, this is said to have enlightened the mind of the Empress. And so, I hope it brings some light to our minds as well. Now, the flower ornament scripture is a huge text. I, I have to admit, I never even tried to read it. 
is more than a, a thousand pages long. I paged through it and I looked at it. I copied some pages. But it's also written in a very thick and flowery language. Really difficult to difficult for people of our culture anyway to read. Still, I think you may enjoy having getting a taste of it and hear some of it. All is due to the Buddha's miraculous deeds of goodness, to his miraculous work of purity, to his miraculous mighty power. All this is because he has a miraculous power of transforming his one body and making it pervade the entire universe. It is because it, he has a miraculous power of making all the Buddhas, all the Buddha lands, with their splendors, enter into his own body. It is because he has a miraculous power of manifesting all the images of the Dharma Datu, say the universe, within a single particle of dust. It is because he has a miraculous power of revealing all the Buddhas of the past with their successive doings within a single pore of his skin. It is because he has a miraculous power of illuminating the entire universe with each of the rays which emanate from his body. It is because he has a miraculous power of evolving clouds of transformation from a single pore of his skin and making them fill all the Buddha lands. It is because he has the miraculous power of revealing, revealing in a single pore of his skin the whole history of all the worlds in all the ten quarters from the first appearance until the final destruction. It is for this reason that this that in this grove are revealed all the purities and splendors of the Buddha land. So it's a bit overwhelming. And here's again some comments from D.T. Suzuki. How can this body of ours, said Suzuki, be made to take in the entire objectivity? How can our insignificant, ignominious hair hole or pore of the skin be turned into a holy stage where all the Buddhas of the past, present and future can congregate for the spiritual discourses? It's a tall order, this scripture. <laughs> Obviously, this is an utter impossibility or the height of absurdity. absurdity. But the strange fact is that when a door opens and a light shines from an unknown source into the dark chamber of consciousness, all time and space limitations dissolve away and we make the roar of a lion. So, that was uh, quite uh, a number of centuries ago, some 
2,000 years or more ago that was written and Suzuki made his comments uh, maybe 100 years ago or less. We could, of course, and it's, I think it can be helpful, try to recast without ignoring the flower ornament sculpture, the scripture, quite the country, but um, try to recast it in a more contemporary language, contemporary imagery, so that we can better connect our current concepts with ancient wisdom. That imagery could be the imagery of the internet, of course. could be also the imagery of holography and uh, transpersonal psychology. So let, let me spend just a few minutes uh, exploring how to recast that imagery in, in ways that uh, we seem to understand uh, a little better. Take holography. As some of you know, perhaps not all of you, a hologram is um, a kind of photographic technique, holography. And a hologram is a plate that has the imagery of that technique which allows you to see things in three dimensions. In other words, it's a plate that is two-dimensional that translates into three dimension when illuminated appropriately. The interesting thing about the holographic plate is that each area of the plate contains the whole of the imagery. You see, unlike a regular photograph, you take an area and there's a sky, another area, and there's a tree. In this plate, the whole of the imagery is in each area, but if you take a small area, the smaller the area, the more indistinct the imagery is. The larger the area, the greater the clarity. And, and, and that is so much as the Indra's net tells us, you know, isolated, we don't see that much. You know, if we take ourselves as a separate jewel, there's nothing to reflect. In fact, maybe you don't see anything. Maybe it's blank. Maybe we're blank if we're totally separate. I, I, I would guess so. I would guess so. We come alive and we... I, I, have more clarity, the wider the net that we connect with. Another interesting thing about the holographic uh, metaphor is that scientists have applied very specifically to the inside of our consciousness as well. there's a, a lot of talk in brain science about the holographic brain. It is true that certain areas of the brain are more proficient for certain functions. 
And certainly many of you may have heard about the distinction between right brain and left brain. Right brain, which is on the... No, what is it? Yeah, no, right brain is on the right, but it connects with the left, that's what it is. And left brain is on the left, connects with the right. And they function somewhat differently. But the, the wholeness of our consciousness requires both interacting. And so with uh, all the different sort of areas of the brain, they may work better for one thing or better for another thing, but the richness comes from interaction. And, and that's also a message that we get from the discipline of transpersonal psychology. Quite clearly, when psychologists started studying our individual personal life, it soon became clear that that couldn't be the whole story. And there are many things that happen and only happen in the course of interactions. And this is a wide discipline. I'm just uh, going to share you a snippet that, that's from a recent, last month, uh, New York Times whatever, Sunday issue, I think. It's about mirror neurons. Sounds interesting. Mirror neurons also immediately bring to mind the metaphor of the candle with all the mirrors. Mirror neurons track emotional flow, movement, and even intentions of the person we are with. And replicate these sensed state in our own brain by stirring in our brain the same areas active in the other person. Mirror neurons offer a neural mechanism that explains emotional contagion, the tendency of one person to catch the feelings of another, particularly if strongly expressed. Not necessarily in the subtlety of, of this group where non-verbal, non-verbal communication gets rampant. Maybe we don't even need to read that to know it. The brain-to-brain link may also account for the feelings of rapport, rapport which represent, which, sorry, which research finds depend in part an extremely rapid synchronization of people's posture, vocal pacing, and movements as they interact. In short, these brain cells seem to allow the interpersonal orchestration of shifts in psychology. Pretty obvious. But in a way, so was, so is the Indra net imagery. I also mention, as a contemporary version, the Internet. I, I really have to admit that I'm not very proficient at using it and don't spend much time with it. I'm not the person to talk about it. <laughs> any, of, any of you has more experience, you will probably have, too, a sense of uh, 
endless net uh, in using the internet. Now, before I go on talking about this, a couple of words of caution are important. Because this net can be very powerful, but also can get tricky. One way how things get tricky is when we start leaving something, somebody, some part of reality out of the net. When the net becomes selective, deliberately so, rather than all-embracing. Then it's the net of us versus them. Boy, is that familiar to us in the current political climate. Just to mention one instance. Uh, it can be very blunt, of course. I mean, the bluntest of all was in, under Hitler in Germany. Extermination of a whole group of people. Jews and all ranks. And then it can be very subtle. You know, I, the other day, I caught myself. Shame to mention. Caught myself dismissing somebody because she voted Republican. I mean, in my mind, dismissing her in my mind because she voted Republican. The same thing if somebody else to dismiss somebody for the, because they voted Democrat. I mean, it's not an issue of which party. It's an issue of such a tendency to do that. So, surely, that can play havoc with the Indra's net. It becomes very much what's not meant to be. It invalidates it. Not to say that we would not be more attracted to like-minded people, of course. But the question is that we need to be open to everybody. The other word of caution that I would offer has to do with not becoming attached to the concept of the Indra's net. It's so rich, so vivid, so seductive. Do remember that it is the path, and very much so the path. It is not um, a promised land of destination. That's not what the net is about. Surely not in the flower ornaments scripture and not in any other current interpretation. And and this may be important because all of us who are the children of the culture of romanticism have this tendency to fall for this <coughs> ideas is fantasies, 
But the main thing is just to keep in mind that nothing, not even Indra's net, not even that beautiful imagery, is worth clinging to. That's all. As long as we don't cling to it, as long as we don't discriminate the other problem, it works. If we connect more easily with the people who are, call it, more like-minded, of course, naturally. If we cannot connect easier with the people who are open and willing to share, of course. But not to dismiss the others, which include ourselves, who sometimes ourselves have <coughs> difficulty sharing as well. And one way to look at this is that this beautiful jewels in the net, translucent and reflective, are not necessarily always clean. Just like mirrors sometimes get soiled, get smudged, get scruffy. So some of us are a bit scruffy. Well, no need to blame. Just whenever possible, help us do the cleaning. Help us do the cleaning. And I just just remember some of the things that we've talked about in the group has to do with that, you know. Helping somebody else clean up the jewel. can be dealt with. And so, the invitation here really is to open up to the net of Indra. To open up to life. See how far we can do it. Give it a try. What can help us here is trust. That's the key. I was talking yesterday about trust as an antidote for loneliness. Well, it's also an antidote for... It's, it's a balsam, really, for connecting. To help us access the infinitude of Indra's net inside ourselves, because the net is inside ourselves and outside ourselves, in the vast realm of relationships with other beings, with life. You know, if I didn't know about trust, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. That's kind of ridiculous. I mean, when do I, I get the stuff I'm saying? Sure, I have a piece of paper here with some notes, but that's not where the stuff comes from. Or, I mean, it came from all kinds of sources. And... Um, and right now, it again 
I trust that I can speak to you. It may not be, you know, the best talk. It may. It's not the issue. Not evaluating my own talk, my own inspiration. Because if I start evaluating, forget it, nothing is going to come out. It's touching it and trust it. Trust that it is working for me. Trust that it is working for you, or at least for some of you. Or some parts are working for some of you. In no way am I to have a chance to to make sure that what I am saying is unquestionable, is a hundred percent. It's simply inspired from a sense that it can be helpful. One way how I can sense that, I mean, I may be wrong, of course, absolutely, but I, can, I have a feeling for that, is when what I hear myself say inspires me, well, it may inspire you too. And here we have, again, the play of trust, of the inner net of Indra, in the outer net of interest. You know, if my vision is not fully transparent, well, the time will come when I start polishing the jewel, see if it can be a little more translucid. Actually, that's uh, very much what we do in retreats, right? I mean, in long retreats, oh boy. Piles of dirt that we collect. (laughs) It's a trust that allows us to open up. To let love touch us. Not not touch us. Impregnate us. That's Let me at this point share another story that has to do with trust. It was shared by somebody in our Wednesday group and uh, she said I could share it with this group, so I am. It's a very simple story. Just one, one little example of trust. This member of our group says uh, that uh, whenever she gets home, she gets out of the car and she takes uh, the keys to the, which include the key to her home, and in her hand, uh, and goes out and opens the door. 
And she says the other day as she was coming to the group on Wednesday, she got out of the car and she found her hand going to a pocket of where it is, pocketbook, whatever, and pulling out the keys. She was coming home. We can be home for each other. It's powerful. So there are so many ways in which trust can manifest itself and give us encouragement to open up. And if it doesn't manifest itself, let's be patient. Let's uh, wait till we are ready. In the meantime, clean our jewels as well as we can. And maybe help our friend clean their jewels, if, if it's appropriate, of course. Let me close with a lighter note, but uh, certainly closely related. It's uh, my usual poem in Spanish. (laughs) And I can't resist reading it in Spanish. I know there are a few of you who understand it. And uh, it's brief anyway. (laughs) Then I'll give you a translation. And it's a bit light, but it has very much to do with uh, this, the poet's uh, endless net. The poet is Juan Ramón Jiménez. He died in 1959, a Spanish poet. This is what he says in Spanish first. Yo no soy yo, soy este que va a mi lado sin yo verlo, que a veces voy a ver y que a veces olvido. El que calla sereno cuando hablo, el que perdona dulce cuando odio, el que pasea por donde no estoy, el que quedará en pie cuando yo muera. I am not I. I am this one walking besides me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I'm indoors. The one who will remain standing when I die. Just sit for a couple of minutes, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.